the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hi, folks. I'm WWE Hall of Famer Hacksaw Jim Duggan. If you'd like hearing knock-knock jokes or jokes about your grandmother, go somewhere else! Oh! oh my god, this is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip Podcast. This is Cody Rhodes, and you are listening to Two Man Power Trip. Good, how you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man, what's going on? We ready to go, or what? Okay. This is a uh, special visitor, the hardcore legend, Mick Foley. It was a very rough feud to go through with Rick. It was a very bitter feud, too. He certainly didn't like me at that time, and I didn't like him, and we were both trying to be at the top. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't beat me. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid up, they knew they could kick the out of me. At this point, well, I'll be at a signing, and little kids will come up to me and throw up the click sign or talk about, oh, your ladder match with Sean at WrestleMania 10. I go, wait a minute. You weren't even a glimmer in your dad's eye. But yeah, bro, it's really flattering and, and amazing and humbling. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two men power trip of trip of wrestling empire this is the flagship show i am a jp a john puss and today's episode is brought to you by manscape check out manscape.com and listen on later on in the show where we ha- will have more details where you can get a nice little discount and free shipping from manscaped so today's episode is of course with our guest, Guy Evans, the author of the Nitro book, The Rise and Inevitable Collapse of WCW. Now, with this book, I mean, it's such, such a, a great book 
book. I mean, oh man, there's just so much in here. It's 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 a monster. If you really look at it, it's over 500 pages. It's a monster. But don't be intimidated by that because it is a quick read. You will get through those 500 pages quicker than you could ever imagine. Just awesome, awesome stuff. And to have Guy on and get him on for the decent amount of time that we did, I mean, it was just great to kind of talk to him been dying to talk to him for quite a while actually i mean ever since kind of book got released he's been one of the guys at the very top of my list to get on an interview for the show he is just one of those guys where he did so much research and did so many interviews and he's so fascinating and he was such a good fan and such a good author such a good historian such a good journalist had to get him on had to talk about wcw which was one of my favorite promotions of all time when wcw was good Nothing was better. And if you think about that Attitude Era, when Steve Austin came along, yeah, it was great. But that's when the NWO was kind of dying off, and it wasn't as effective as it was in, in 96 and in, in, in really in 97. And when they were really kind of cooking with gas and, and just kick, kicking ass and really uh, kicking on all cylinders. I mean, they did such a good job with the early stages of Nitro. And, and of course, you know, as they talk about in the in the book, the inevitable collapse, it all kind of uh, falls apart for Ted Turner's WCW. And we learn that maybe the reasons that we've heard in other books and other places isn't maybe the reason for the collapse. So we talk about all that and we kind of, you know, delve into that and get into that and really, really talk about a myriad of topics of course, you know, the focus could be on that Attitude Era. It could be on that Monday Night Wars era where Nitro was going head-to-head against Raw. It was Bischoff versus McMahon. It was Ted Turner versus the WWF. I mean, however you want to say it, however you want to word it, it was WCW, WWF, Interpromotional War. We will never see anything quite like that again. It was just one of those amazing times in professional wrestling. If you were a fan at that point, whoo, man, you were spoiled and and I know people say oh there's so much wrestling on nowadays no no you were spoiled with some of the greatest talents ever in the history of the wrestling business I mean you had Hogan leading the charge with Hall and Nash in the NWO you had so much talent hell Sting was just so red hot with that Crow character such a cool gimmick it was like basically Batman versus the Joker when you had Sting versus the NWO. I mean, it was two just amazing characters and amazing groups, and obviously staying as an individual, but amazing group of talent with the NWO and so many talented wrestlers in WCW. You kind of rooted for everybody. I mean, for the most part, I mean, it's just like, wow, this, and then, oh, shit, the cruiserweights. You got Mysterio and and Hoovy and, and, and Chris Jericho and all these other guys. Then you throw in Dean Malenko and and Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero. I mean, man, they were just so stacked with talent and, and they were so loaded. And not even mention all the WF guys were really just focusing on WCW. They were just so stacked and so loaded. So to kind of be able to relive some of that with Guy in this interview was great. And to really dig deep in the Nitro book and talk about all these rare interviews that he got and and, and really kind of talk about these high-ranking officials who were giving him some real good information that some other books and that some other people covering the story really didn't touch on for whatever reason. I mean, people could say agendas, but I just don't think they had the connections or maybe the wherewithal to get these connections like Guy had. So he interviewed some people that you will not see being interviewed by other people. Man, he's interviewing high executives. He's interviewing Harvey Schiller. Obviously, he's interviewing Eric Bischoff. And we do talk about a guy and maybe the only guy besides Ted Turner that he didn't get the chance to interview on the record, and that was Brad Siegel. And I have a great story in this interview as well 
my little talk with Brad Siegel, which <laughs> you'll find out in the interview uh, from him as well, he will not talk to you on the record. He will only talk to you off the record. So me and Guy have a great conversation uh, about that as well. He talks to Brian Badal. He talks about the, the, the Fusion Media. All awesome, awesome topics, and it's so interesting. I just love, love, love this book. I can't recommend it enough. If you want to go to WCWNitroBook.com, you can. You can also go to Amazon.com and check it out there as far as the physical copy if you want to read the book. Now, I can officially say this, the audio copy is available, which is epic as well. And you can get that at WCWNitroBook.com. Check that out. It's just really, really cool stuff. But I also implore you, if you want to go that route, if it's the easier way for you to go, and you got an Amazon account, check it out on Amazon, Amazon.com as well. Now, with Guy and with this interview, I, I kind of uh, made a promise to him, and he made a promise to me. He will be back on the show. We will delve into it. I mean, this book is a monster, like I mentioned. It's over 500 pages, so one interview for over an hour probably is not going to get us done, so we're going to have to bring him back. Hey, maybe bring him back a couple times. I think that would be just absolutely great, and hopefully he he's up for doing that because – Man, there was so much to talk about, and I had so many notes on the book and so many notes for him that I basically got through maybe half of them, and, and I got so many more that I would just love, love, love to kind of get into with him and talk more about him. Even maybe even talk about some current wrestling because he's such a good fan from back in the day, kind of get more of his thoughts on the current state of the business. We do talk a bit, a little bit about it in this one, but not as much as I would like to. But, folks, I implore you, get the book. It is called Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WC. And now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Raslin Pal. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Check out the feed for awesome past episodes, including Bruno San Martino, Sean Mike, Dusty Rhodes, Jerry Lawler, Terry Funk, Goldberg, Ray Mysterio Jr., Arn Anderson, Glenn Kane Jacobs, and so many more. While you're on the web, visit ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. Visit our store, visit J.J. Dillon's store, Francine's store, and of course, the franchise Shank Douglas' store. For all you Android users out there, find us on Google Play and Player FM. For all you iOS users, check us out on TuneIn Radio, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Automatic, and now Stitcher. And of course, check out the Empire. Yes, that is the TMPT Empire now. TMPTEmpire.com for all the latest and greatest on the two-man power trip of wrestling. And now, without any further ado, he's a journalist, a historian, a wrestling fan, and most importantly, he's the author of a WCW Nitro book, Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW, Guy Evans.
Okay. Joining us on the line right now, he is a, a journalist, a historian, a wrestling fan. He is, of course, the author of the WCW Nitro book, Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. He is Mr. Guy Evans. Guy, welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thanks, John. That's quite the billing. I hope I can uh, live up to that kind of an introduction. It's, uh, it's great to be with you. Hey, it is awesome to just talk to you, and I just I love the book, Nitro. I'm a huge WCW fan. What is going on lately with the book? I feel like there was such a huge surge of the book. It was such popularity, and then the momentum kept going. You, I mean, it just kept getting more popular. Bischoff was talking about it, Conrad. I mean, everybody loves the book. What's been the latest on the, on the Nitro book? It's, it's funny that you mention that, and I think it's a very um, astute observation because if anyone listening isn't aware, uh, the book that we're talking about, Nitro, uh, actually came out in July of 2018, believe it or not. So we're coming up on uh, the two-year anniversary in a few months. And um, as you said, it, it, it seems to, it, it never ceases to amaze me how it seems to reach new readers. Uh, just when you think, you know, the momentum is, is coming to a halt, someone else will talk about it on a podcast or an interview and it will spark, a, you know, another resurgence in, in interest for it. So it, it continues to amaze me, to be honest with you. So what has been like your reaction to it all? Are you shocked at all? You, you kind of expected it? Like what's kind of been your overall reaction to it? I would say somewhat shocked to be, to be plainly honest. I mean, I was confident putting together the book. It was a, a three and a half year process. So I was confident that it was certainly going to make an impact. And I was very um, proud of the work once it was done and, and happy to stand by it. Um, but of course, you never know what the response is, is going to be. And there were, I think, a, a certain number of people um, who were aware that the book was coming out beforehand. And so, of course, you can kind of bank on a, on a certain level of response or reaction. Um, but, uh, you know, once we hit the, I guess, two or three month mark after release, once it really started to um, be talked about on the airwaves and really get on the radar of a lot of people in the wrestling business, that's what I think really gave the book a tremendous amount of legs and it's uh it's really been remarkable sort of the impact it's it's had um on a lot of people that are are affected by the wcw story but also myself personally as well it's been uh it's been a huge thing over the last couple of years so what's been going on as far as the book the audio is coming out what, what's going on what's the latest that that's correct so hopefully by the time people are hearing this john uh the audible version of Nitro will be live on the Amazon page. So if you just type in Nitro Guy Evans or Nitro, the incredible rise and inevitable collapse of Ted Turner's WCW, um, if you want to put the whole title in there, you'll see that there's uh, a paperback version, there's the ebook or Kindle version. And as I say, we've just wrapped up the, um, the audio version as well. So that should be live on Audible by the time um, people are listening to this. So um, I would imagine once uh, people get a chance to to hear the audio uh, version of the book, that will uh, probably keep this thing going a little bit more. So it's uh, it's all very exciting. Yeah, it's one of those things that you'll hit the momentum thing will hit another you know upswing and, and the momentum will keep rolling again. Absolutely, it's it's yeah, like I say, it it's uh, sometimes when I'll when I'll kind of sit back and and really take it all in, it's I have to kind of shake my head because you know you you work on something for such a long period of time and. Like I say, you really don't know exactly how it's going to hit. So I've uh, been very fortunate and feel very uh, grateful in that respect. 
Now, what actually inspired you to write this book? Were you always like a big WCW fan? Well, it's it's funny because, uh, as you can tell, uh, you know, by my accent, I grew up across the other side of the pond. Um, so I, I grew up in, in the UK, and I was one of those uh, fans that was created through the mid to late 90s wrestling boom. You know, of course, uh, e- even in the UK, being thousands of miles away um, at that time, um, the, the effects of that um, were certainly felt um, in, terms of, in terms of the interest over there. So I actually followed both WCW and the WWF at the time um, very closely during that entire time period. And as I've said in a couple of other interviews, you know, once WCW went away, that really was sort of the extent of my interest in the wrestling business, to be completely honest with you. I sort of had a, an instinctive feeling that it wasn't going to quite be the same again, and it, it certainly was an end of an era. And, you know, like many other fans, you know, I stuck through the ill-fated invasion storyline that we all remember, you know, not so fondly or perhaps fondly for some people in, uh, in 2001 and, you know, sort of wanted to, to check things out and see where things were going. But somewhere around 2002, I just kind of uh, checked out and kind of uh, moved on to, to some other things, as I know many wrestling fans will do in terms of their fandom. You know, you'll, you'll come in and out at different points in your life. And bizarrely enough, to answer your question, um, it wasn't until, if you remember, the very short-lived run that TNA had on Monday nights in early 2010, it wasn't until around that time period that, that I started thinking not only about WCW, but actually wrestling again. And I don't quite remember how exactly that came on my radar. I think, you know, a friend may have sent me an email saying, you know, this is pretty interesting, like Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair and all these guys from back in the day, they're, they're trying to, it seems like they're trying to kickstart things again. And uh, I remember tuning into that first uh, Monday show in January of 2010. And like I say, it just kind of got me thinking about what a big part wrestling was in, in my life growing up. And so, of course, naturally, you know, that led to checking out a lot of the other accounts of the WCW story and reading some of the other books on the subject and, and digging into the documentaries and so on. And, you know, I found them all to be very entertaining and very informative, but also felt like there was probably um, uh, perhaps not a, a, a deeper or richer story, but just a, a different story that could be told. Maybe a broader story would be another way of putting it. And I always kind of wanted someone to approach um, this subject by analyzing WCW more as a business as opposed to the sort of week-to-week, um, you know, shenanigans that took place in the storylines. And finally, around, I guess, 2014, 2015, I kind of said, well, if, if no one else is going to have a stab at this, then, then I'm going to have a go. And, uh, you know, as we just talked about, little did I know what that was going to turn into all of these years later. Man, it's just crazy to think that you gave up on wrestling because WWE is dead. And all of a sudden, you're like, you know what? I'm going to write a book about it, and, and I'm, I'm going to dig, dig deeper. I'm going to find out what the hell happened. I mean, it's such an interesting thing. I was always a WCW guy over WWF. I know I was just, you know, the NWO and, and everything, even before the NWO, but th- when the NWO happened, then you see WWF copying them and, and taking a lot of their stuff and then, you know, adding an attitude to it and Steve Austin and McMahon. I mean, we know the whole thing, but the WCW side was so interesting. What kind of made you, like, really – dig even deeper into that that was it some of the books you read that were a little bit too subjective on the matter 
it, yeah, I think that that's definitely part of it. Um, I think this was a sentiment perhaps um, shared by, well, I, I know for a fact this is something that, that a lot of people um, felt at that time, which was, you know, it seems like in a lot of these uh, documentaries, for example, we're hearing from the same small, um, you know, selection of, of people time after time, some of whom, if you watch some of the, the WWE produced videos, weren't actually with WCW at the time. Um, and so you, you're kind of getting um, certainly a side of the story. You're getting a lot of valuable contributions from people who certainly have a lot to say. Um, but there were a lot of key figures that you would hear about, um, you know, whether they be Jamie Kellner, for example, or Harvey Schiller or, or Brad Siegel, um, these, these sort of uh, figures in the background that, uh, as wrestling fans, you've, you've come to know and understand had a lot to do with the story, but curiously, you never actually hear from these people. So I, I suppose um, that was definitely a, a driving factor in terms of me wanting to take a different approach with the book. I thought, you know, I, I can't really do this and in good faith uh, discuss the, the contributions or lack thereof of these people without at least reaching out to these people. And as you know, John, and, and many others surely do listening, you know, in the end, uh, this book had the, the input from over 120 former PBS and, and WCW employees, and, and the large majority of them are quoted in the book. Um, so I was very happy to kind of bring, I suppose, a more holistic or, or well-rounded perspective um, and really hear from people that we hadn't heard before. But there, there, there's so much um, in, in addition to that, which I think really makes this a very interesting story. You think about Ted Turner and who he was and um, his influence in all of this. You think about the the cultural landscape at the time and how different it is today. You think about the media landscape at the time and what was going on in, in, in popular um, entertainment um, is certainly as evidenced by a lot of the trends that we've seen in the last few years. This was um, a time period that many people look, look back on um, you know, very fondly um, and, and a very different time as compared to today. So, you know, and some things have changed for the better and some things possibly for the worse. But when you put all of that together and then you combine the, the wrestling aspect and you think about all of the incredibly unique personalities that were involved on screen and off screen with WCW specifically, I mean, this, this probably could have been developed into two or three books if, uh, if I had a little bit more time. <laughs> I would freaking love it if you, you did add those. I mean, that would be awesome somehow, right. some way. The most interesting thing to me, you know, obviously the 120 interviews with TBS and WCW guys. You mentioned Harvey Schiller. You mentioned Jamie Kellner. Brad Siegel, is he a bit of a, a white whale as far as really kind of getting him down and, and getting him to commit? Yeah, there's a there's a, an anecdote that I share at some point towards the end of the book. It may be in the acknowledgement section or somewhere in there where I talk about my interactions with Brad Siegel. Um, I suppose to, to make a long story short, um, you know, that was one of the disappointments, I think, that came from the project. And I think, in retrospect, uh, one of the errors that I, that I made in terms of um, interactions with, with other people, because I felt that it was very important, if I was going to speak to Brad Siegel, to get him on the record. As I said, the large majority of people quoted in this book, whether they be Jamie Kellner, Harvey Schiller, Eric Bischoff... Uh, you could you could go down the line. Brian Bedol, who was of course involved in the Fusion Media Ventures apparent takeover of WCW towards the end. Um, many many people obviously on the on the wrestling side and, and the Turner side. But I felt that it was very 
important to get him um, quoted in the book just because there are so many people who have opinions about the job that he did. And uh, I think, you know, by sort of making that known, uh, I think he may have got sort of cold feet at the last minute. Um, we did have a, a date and time um, scheduled and, and booked to talk. And when we actually had a chance to have that conversation, you know, I think that was one thing that was definitely a stickler for him. And, uh, and th that ended up costing any sort of future interaction with him. So, um, you know, I suppose you can agree or disagree with my assessment that, it's a, that, that it was an error, but certainly it's one thing that I do look back on um, in terms of wishing that I did have more of his, uh, more interactions with him and definitely, a, you know, a, a quoted passage in the book from him. But you never know what the future could hold. Absolutely. And I've never revealed this before, and I guess the statute of limitations is up. I should be able to reveal it. I had a nice conversation with him probably about a year ago or so, but it was strange. He would not let me record it. I said, oh, you know, I want to, I want to do an interview, but he says it's got to be off the record. He doesn't want to be recorded. And then, he's like, then he's like, you know what, I'll think about it. And then he's like, you know what, no, I don't want it to be on the record. So we did about 15, 20 minutes totally off the record, not recorded. Mm. You know, I had, I had my notes and everything, but he, he was great. And it was weird that he didn't want to be recorded and he wanted everything to be off the record. I just thought it was strange because his answers were great. And when he was mm. talking about WCW, I mean, it, it, a lot of the stuff he was saying made sense. Do you think that there's an, another reason why he's trying to be maybe a little bit private about WCW? I, I, I think that maybe I know from someone that I would – regard as a very reputable source that, you know, I know he, he was sort of tracking the progress of the book um, as it was being put together. And I, I know certainly, you know, he was aware when it came out and he, he's had some discussions about it. Um, I think that the sense that I got from speaking with him, um, of course, all of these years later since the company was sold, I think, um, you know, I think a lot of times what people tend to hold on to and remember, unfortunately, is the way that things end up. And so probably when um, he's asked to talk about this particular subject, uh, I would imagine his mind is, is more so focused on the last year or so of the company when he was, you know, um, put in a, in, a, in a very difficult um, position, certainly. And, you know, depending on who you speak with, um, you can kind of make up your own mind how much fault lays at, at his feet for what ultimately ended up happening. Um, but, you know, I would, I would venture to say that, you know, when, when he is asked about WCW, he's probably not thinking about, you know, the launch of Nitro or the rating success or when things were good. You know, unfortunately, he has a lot of the, um, the stigma that comes with what happened with the company in the last year, year and a half, um, associated with his name, and I, I could certainly sense that. In fact, he more or less verbalized that to me when, when we had our chance to speak. So um, that, that's probably the, the, the main reason I would suggest why he's not, uh, you know, jumping over the moon to talk about it. It was he kind of basically, I don't know, you know, that conspiracy theory with him, and uh, I forget who it was, but his, it was a, a Stuart college. Snyder. Yes, Stu Snyder. Uh -huh. Is that also also that quoted in the book, I should say. Yeah. I, had a, I had a nice uh, a nice long interview with Stu Snyder, so you can hear his take on that, but I'm sorry to cut you off. Oh, yes, yes. That, I was going to say, I know it's in the book, but Stu Snyder, um, is that something maybe Brad was trying to avoid 
for, for some reason? Because Stu wasn't avoiding it, but I mean, was Brad maybe trying to avoid well, it? Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you, you mentioned Stu Snyder. That was an interview, um, believe it or not, that probably took about 18 months to actually make happen. Oh, my um, God. You know, and, and you know, we're not talking about daily contact occurring in the interim. You know, it was not like I was calling him every morning at 9 o'clock trying to get him to commit to the interview. It was periodic, sporadic contact during that time. Um, and there were many times in that 18 months where I was convinced he wasn't going to do it. So I think he was very hesitant, actually. And, uh, you know, again, similar to Brad Siegel, though, um, you know, I felt it was important for him to know that, you know, I was looking for an on-the-record interview. I was going to ask him about um, some aspects related to WCW and his tenure at the WWF, which, of course, is a key part to, uh, key part to the story. You know, I made him aware that I was going to ask him to respond to that. Um, so I suppose, you know, I see what you're getting at in terms of, although there was initial reluctance on his end, which actually persisted for quite a while, once he came around, he was happy to talk about it, happy to have the interview on tape, and happy, obviously, to be quoted in the book. So, um, so I guess people can kind of draw their own conclusions from that, perhaps. Yes, yeah, that's such an interesting thing to me, because he's one of those guys, so successful, and obviously Brad Siegel, so successful as well. So I was like, man, I really want to hear from them about that, but maybe it is a, tough, a touchy subject uh, for Brad, and maybe he doesn't want to get into any personal stuff uh, as well as far as, you know, what what did or didn't happen with WCW. Yeah, it's you know, and I think another thing that I discovered throughout the process of, of writing this book is a, a lot of times when you talk to um, – I would say at the, at, the, at the risk of finding a, uh, a better way to put it, you know, you speak to a, someone in the TV business, a TV person um, or a media person, uh, you know, WCW may have been at that particular time, one of many things that they were kind of juggling in terms of how they were dividing their time. And the reaction that I got from some of those kind of people was more line, along the lines of, you know, Oh yeah, WCW wasn't that a cool thing back in the day? Wow, I haven't you know I haven't really thought about that in a while. And Brad Siegel's level of involvement obviously was 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 much greater than um, a lot of those kind of people. But I suppose you know what I'm getting at is sometimes those of us who really followed the product very closely back then and and, and could probably rattle off you know every pay-per-view card and storyline known to man. You know, it's it's still something that's very very um, prominent on our minds, and I think a lot of that has to do with the renewed interest in that time period, as I talked about, that's happened over the last maybe five to ten years, and uh, and, and the nostalgia that comes along with that. But to some people, you know, it, it was one of uh, many things perhaps that they were doing in, in a Turner or one of many things that they were involved in in the entertainment business, and so things are a little bit cloudier for them. So not to say that that was the case with Brad Siegel, but I think that is the case with, with some people. Was there any other interviews that you were not able to get that were kind of like, not that it crushed because the book is unbelievable, but just like maybe it was like, oh, man, that would have been extra sweet. That would have been extra cool. Anybody else come to mind? Well, I appreciate the, the, the comments there, John. And I, I suppose, uh, you know, the, the one um, elusive interview to end all of them was, of course, Ted Turner. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I can tell you that, that I um, really uh, left no stone unturned when, when it came to trying to make that happen. 
I, I went through many, many people to, to see if, you know, if, even if I can get them on the phone for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, just something that would, um, you know, enhance the book from that standpoint. And I think uh, somewhere around 2016, maybe early 2017 or so, um, I'd become aware that he was suffering some, you know, pretty, um, pretty serious health issues. And I think some of that has been made public in the last, uh, I guess, year or so, perhaps year and a half, certainly since the book came out. And so that, that was a signal that it probably wasn't going to happen at that stage. You know, I did get a, um, a statement from, um, from his foundation, which kind of addresses his, um, his involvement with, with WCW, and I was happy to include that in there. Um, but what I will say is, you know, on the subject of Ted, having spoken to so many people who worked very closely with him, um, I'm happy to say that I think a lot of what Ted was all about shines through in the book, um, even though he himself is not personally quoted in the book. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, totally, totally agree. Such an interesting thing when you think about Nitro coming, WBF, King of the Castle, Raw, dominating, obviously, always. They were the number one thing. When you think wrestling, people used to not even say wrestling. They're like, oh, yeah, you're watching that WWF stuff. So it's so even harder for WCW to kind of come along, be way behind the eight ball, come out with Nitro, Bischoff's dominance. Is that one of the things that you, that you really want to encapsulate in the book? Because it seems like WWF has tried to rewrite history over the years and almost try to make you forget that, oh, yeah, Nitro kicked our ass for 83 straight weeks, and we kind of copied a lot of stuff from them, and then we kind of – uh, turned it up a notch, and then we started winning. You know what I mean? Like they almost rewrote history because they won the war. Oh, absolutely. And I think as far as, you know, those of us who watched as fans, as far as what um, we associate with the time period, you know, we, we think about those incredible moments that were taking place on, on a weekly basis, uh, the, the sheer unpredictability and excitement of what could be going on in either of those shows. And so, you know, you're right in terms of how the WWE, I think, has very much simplified the story over the years, which would probably be something along the lines of, you know, Ted Turner came along, stole all of our stars, paid them a a billion dollars each. You know, Vince McMahon went back in the lab, and because of his creative genius and creative brilliance, you know, he was able to develop these uh, these new superstars who, you know, eventually um, uh, made the the, the WCW uh, stars look, look old and and tired in comparison, and, and that was pretty much the, the, the entirety of the story. And um, obviously those people who followed things very closely back then um, would tell you it was, it was much more complex than that. Um, but I think you're right in terms of a lot of the positives, I think, that um, came out of WCW as a company. Certainly in the first, I would say, five to ten years after it, it, it folded, um, tended to be obscured by the bad taste uh, that a lot of people had in their mouth uh, or, or mouths after the company closed. I mean, uh, you know, I can tell you that, that that is something that was shared by many of the people who, uh, who worked at WCW. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people that I spoke to who said, you know, and I'm talking here about people who didn't go on to work in the, in the wrestling business because a lot of people um, actually, believe it or not, you know, I talked about WCW for a time being the end of my interest in wrestling. For a lot of people who worked behind the scenes at WCW, that was the end of their involvement in wrestling. Um, there's quite a lot of those people. And, 
you know, for quite a, a bit of time afterwards um, because of the way that things ended up and all of the deception that went on and all of the, um, you know, the answers that they weren't receiving and, and the rumors and, and obviously the, the poor performance of the company and the, the dwindling interest. Um, it was something that they didn't really want to talk about and they only associated with bad things. So I think enough time has kind of progressed now and crucially people can go back and look at the shows themselves and maybe, you know, people are firing up an episode from 96 or 97 or 98, somewhere in that time frame. And they're saying, you know, oh, wow, I thought WCW was a complete joke. I thought it was just uh, nothing but a bunch of uh, Vince McMahon has-beens doing a bunch of uh, awful matches and storylines. And, you know, the, the, the proof is in the pudding. And now people can go back and, and really uh, check out those shows. It's breaking news here on the two-man power trip. This important PSA is brought to you by Manscaped.com. This is your public service announcement. After more than 18 months of research and development, the Manscaped engineering team has confirmed that they have successfully created the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created. This new trimmer was just released moments ago, and we are the first to confirm the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0 Manscaping trimmer is now available for purchase. This third-generation Manscaped trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to prevent manscaping accidents, and millions of balls are about to be nick-free thanks to Manscaped's advanced skin-safe technology. Now, we've been talking about Manscaped since last year, and we wouldn't endorse a product that we didn't believe in. And one thing I can say about the Manscaped products is that it's not only quality, but it's also the best product you're ever going to find. When I tell you this is premium, I mean premium. The battery will last up to 90 minutes, and one of the coolest new features is the LED light, which illuminates grooming areas for a closer and more precise trimming. They've also upgraded to a 7,000 RPM motor with quiet stroke technology. And let's not forget the charging stand. Show your mower off loud and proud because this design stand is a rapid charging dock powered by USB. And if you're listening to the two-man power trip right now, you are one of the first people to hear about this life-changing product, and we want you to experience it firsthand for yourself. So trim that junk of yours and get 20% off plus free shipping with the code POWERTRIP at manscaped.com. Again, it's 20% off plus free shipping with the code POWERTRIP at manscaped.com. And as always, your balls will thank you. Man, the Nitro, when they was at its best, man, I thought it was unbelievable. Riding the wave and yo, thing and the crow character, and you throw in Goldberg and DDP was hot at that point. Raven's flock was cool. I mean, WWE had so many good things, and, and WWF over the years have tried to change the narrative of it. And, you know, it, as a fan who watched that, it's like kind of annoying. It's like, man, the cruiserweight division, I mean, you go on and on, on, right? I mean, WCW was rich with talent. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, you look at the roster, you know, in, in, again, somewhere in that sort of 97, 98 uh, time frame. You look at the the legendary Hall of Famers uh, that just litter that roster from top to bottom. Um, just just unbelievable. And I think the, the sheer variety that you would see on a on a WCW show. The fact that, as you mentioned, you would have the Luchadors. You know, you would have Goldberg killing people in a minute. You'd have the NWO coming out for an interview and Hall and Nash and, and all that kind of stuff. You would have your your big you know, heavyweight bag that felt like a, you know, you know, a boxing match on pay-per-view, perhaps in, in your main event. You'd have the tag team division. You'd have the, the international stars. You'd have some of the legends, 
mixed in on the show. And then you combine that with, as we touched on earlier, the, the sheer unpredictability and the, the chaos, quite frankly, that um, seemed to envelop a, a lot of the shows. Certainly when Nitro was doing well, that was something I think that really aided its presentation. You know, the idea that you're tuning in and, you know, these guys don't appear to be sticking to the same, um, the same structure of the show. And, you know, as we know, as the years went on, a lot of times that was because that particular structure wasn't very tight in and of itself. Um, but for quite a, a long period of time, as you said, it translated into just ama amazing um, programming for the viewer. And uh, I'm not sure about you, you, John. I haven't spoken to you about this. I don't know what your opinions are on this. Um, but it's, it's hard for me to compare what happened back then with what's on television now. And, you know, you, you have to obviously look at it objectively and realize that um, a lot of time has passed, you know, since then. And everyone's older. Everyone's at a different stage of their life. You're not looking through it through the same lens. Um, but uh, I'm not sure, you know, how someone who lived through those shows back then um, could get as invested, let's say, to be kind in, in a lot of the, the offerings um, that, that are on television today. Compared to Nitro, today's wrestling stinks. And I think, you know, <laughs> guys of our age, probably a lot of people think that, you know, the current wrestling right. is definitely not, not where it was back then. It was just, you know, the unpredictable, the unpredictability, the promos, everything was better. Now it's so scripted and it's so choreographed and it's so boring. I mean, some, sometimes you get, you know, Brock Lesnar of the world or something like that, you know, he'll spark your interest in stuff or, you know, they bring back Goldberg or something. Then, you know, then I'm kind of interested. But other than that, yeah, current wrestling is, is not uh, all that's cracked up to be. You know, it's it's funny because I, I was talking about this with uh, Neil Pruitt, who mm -hmm. a lot oh, yeah. of people, I know you, you're familiar, John, a lot of people listening will be the, you know, the, of course, the famous voice of the NWO. He was a feature producer with WCW. And uh, one of the great things that have come out of this book project is Neil and I have become very good friends. And, you know, one of the things that, that, that we were talking about recently is you think about a lot of those stars back in the day, I would argue that quite a, a large percentage of them would have something that would almost appeal to, to everyone in your family, right? So you, you see Ric Flair in the ring, he's in his boxer shorts, he's yelling about how he's going to kill Eric Bischoff. You could probably mm -hmm. have, you know, you could probably have a, uh, a teenager in the room. You could have a mother, father, grandparents, uh, you know, younger people in the room. And everyone's going to find it entertaining and intriguing and appealing on, on some level. And, you know, I think it's, it's been said before that one of the real markers of uh, an iconic superstar wrestler is the extent to which what they do can be imitated and you think about a lot of those guys back then, you know, you would go to school the next day and, and it, it didn't take long to figure out who someone was imitating, right? Whether it's, it's Hulk right. Hogan or, or the Macho Man or, or Ric Flair or whoever. And there's just something very distinctive about those personas, which, you know, obviously seems to be lacking today when you, you turn on a lot of these shows and the presentation, you know, seems to be, um, pretty similar across the board. But again, I, I try to balance that take, if you will, with a recognition of, you know, I don't think I'm in the target audience. I don't think that, right, you know, right. that, that they're trying to appeal to me. So, you know, I, you, you, you have to sort of be careful about, um, you know, how that's kind of influencing how you look at today's programming as well. But 
Um, but certainly it does seem on face value that those just iconic stars and, um, and those, uh, those things about them that can be duplicated and imitated just aren't there as much today. It is crazy. I mean, those larger-than-life guys, I mean, cup in year like Hogan, wooing down the hallways, giving the middle finger when Austin got popular. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, you just vividly remember all that stuff with those guys. Mm-hmm. These guys nowadays, like, oh, man, they, there's nothing really that appealing about any of them. The charisma, the star power, it's just not what it once was. And Yeah, and, and I think, you know, along with that, and this is where I try to, um, I think, sort of, just just be honest in terms of you know and i think this comes through in in reading the book you know when i when i was putting together the book it was from the standpoint of you know i've never worked in the wrestling business i've never worked for uh worked on a wrestling show i didn't have any prior connections with anyone in wrestling prior to writing the book so i have a tremendous amount of respect for everyone involved in the business and i do think at its best it's just one of the most wonderful um, unique forms of, of entertainment and, and actually an amazing piece of sort of American culture as well. So I have a huge respect for professional wrestling. Um, you know, and I try to be careful about sort of throwing my opinion around too much because of that, I suppose. But I think in terms of the, uh, the, the match presentation today, you know, one of the things that kind of concerns me is, you know, uh, how, how much further can some of these performers go with the way that they are um, putting together their matches and, and sort of the, the underlying psychology behind their matches. I think it was Jim Cornette who's famous for saying, you know, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. And I think, I think there's something to be said for that because if you think about the underlying logic of wrestling, you know, the, the only reason that you react with horror when, you know, Jerry Lawler power drives someone is because you've been conditioned to associate that with being a devastating move, right? Mm-hmm. The, only, the only reason you, you assume that no one's going to be able to get up from the people's elbow is because you've been conditioned over a period of time to, to see that as a finishing move. So, you know, now we're in a position where it seems like a lot of those moves and a lot of those um, sequences of moves that in a prior era we would um, associate with, with the end of the match coming, you know, a lot of times are just sort of transitions in, in the middle of the match. And, uh, you know, and I'm sure you could probably speak to that much better, much better than I can. Um, but I suppose what, I, what I'm getting at is I wonder how much in that direction can that trend go before you almost have to, uh, you know, run someone over with, uh, with a truck in the middle of the ring to get a pinfall. You know, I think you're kind of by brick. You know, I would argue, again, I'm, I may be wrong, but I think you're kind of destroying the integrity of what wrestling is at that point. I 100% agree. Totally agree. And it's like, wow, that's not a finish anymore? Like, wow, oh, my God. Like, you know, the Young Bucks killed the super kick. They do 100 of them in a match. When Shawn Michaels used to land one, the match was over. So, you know, as a fan, you're conditioned to that. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, wow, like, that's not a finisher. Um, certain power bombs aren't finishers anymore. It's just, you're just surprised. It's like, okay, I guess you got to run the guy over with a, a truck or, or a car, and, and then they got to be finished. And then they still might kick out. Yeah, and, and again, it, it's sort of, makes you question why why are we calling these finishing moves anymore right if they're just if it takes eight of them to actually pin a guy i mean i suppose again from a psychological standpoint and i know having you know spoken to to a lot of people in the business about this this is a, a widely sort of shared sentiment i think in a in a big match scenario you know if it's a wrestlemania main event or or something like that or it's a huge grudge match between 
two wrestlers who are somewhat on equal footing, you could probably make the case that, yeah, it's, it's realistic that they would need to hit each other with their best moves possibly several times for the other guy to, to, to give up, right, or to get pinned. Uh, but when it's like match one on the card and they've already been hit by the same thing five or six times, I think it's not, not only could you argue it's, it's hurting uh, the, the underlying psychology and logic of wrestling, but I would say it's also limiting the reach of wrestling because it's, it's, it's hard, I think, for uh, someone who isn't a hardcore follower of the spectacle to get involved in that because it's, it visually something doesn't look right. And you're, you're already telling yourself, if you're someone who's not a fan, you're already telling yourself, I know that this is all predetermined. And then when you're seeing something that visually doesn't match up with your expectations, um, it can get hard to, to, to buy into the rest of the show, especially when, you know, we're talking about these shows now, you know, being, being three hours in, in duration on a consistent basis. So I, I also worry about the future of wrestling in terms of, you know, to what extent are you going to be able to broaden the reach of, of your fan base with that kind of style? Yes, so true. I mean, we're pretty much neck and neck with exactly with what you said. I, I totally agree. And it's interesting that Raw is three hours. Did they not learn anything from Nitro being three hours and that kind of diluting the product? I mean, isn't that crazy? Did they learn nothing from that? Well, I, you know, obviously, as, as we know, you know, financial considerations will, will, will trump all of that. And maybe there was a, you know, a certain uh, arrogance that, well, you know, th- this didn't work for our competition, but we could find a way to, to make it work. But I think, you know, you go back to, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe we're talking 2012, right, which is when they expanded to three hours, mm-hmm. um, somewhere in that, in that time frame. You know, I think if you were to go back and look at a lot of the concerns people raised at that time uh, from a creative standpoint, what was going to happen to the product, I think all of those, you know, were realized in, in fairly short order. And, uh, you know, you, you look at the, um, the overall interest, you look at the, the viewership, you know, year by year, it does seem like it's, it's, uh, it's tracking in the wrong direction. And, of course, you know, on, as we say in the book, on, on an independent level, you could argue that, you know, wrestling is, is somewhat thriving. And, obviously, AEW coming into the picture, that's created the, the possibility for, for new fans to perhaps be created through through competition, but I think just as a matter of principle, it's a very hard ask to get someone who isn't currently a fan to devote three hours of their time, and that's not even to speak of the Friday show and all of the other shows from the other companies in in the middle of the week, and then we throw the pay-per-views on top of that, but it's a very hard ask to get someone to commit to that, especially when you consider that there's no off-season. You know, I I think it's one thing if you're watching a uh, a show that you know is going to wrap up in, in 13 or, or, you know, 26 weeks or what have you. Um, but when it's something that's going year round, year after year, um, it's, it, it's got to be next to impossible, I think, especially for an adult who doesn't have a background in wrestling to actually get involved in it. And it's so interesting as far as thinking about where wrestling is now and where it was then and how the ratings are so low. Even AEW and NXT, the ratings are so low. And you go and you look at Nitro and like, oh, man, they, 
they failed and oh my god they you know they lost the war and WWF bought them. Wait, what was their rating the last three point oh? Wait, what? They were getting th- over three million viewers as they were dying. I mean AEW NXT W held WWE Raw and SmackDown would kill for three million viewers. So it's funny looking back, it's like okay, maybe Nitro during the dying days wasn't as bad as we thought it was. Well, I think you know you you would qualify that with obviously a comparison of, as we talked about earlier, where the, the media landscape is now, and we haven't even touched on the technological changes since then. I mean, that's obviously a huge factor in what we're talking about as well. But I think I, what I would add to that is what has happened, and I, and I, and I hate to, you know, I hope we're not sounding to the listener like we're just uh, <laughs> going through all of the things that, that are terrible nowadays, but <laughs> I, would, I would also add to that um, what has happened to the viewing experience itself you know, because I think it's safe to say that um, a, a lot of fans nowadays, you know, you're, you're watching the show, but you're also engaging in social media at the, at the same time. You're also possibly skipping through um, certain segments or perhaps a, a lot of segments that you don't necessarily want to see. You know, you're watching the show at your own pace, in your own time, which, of course, is a great thing from, from many, uh, in, in many ways, in many respects. Um, but what a contrast to back then where, you know, it seemed like you couldn't wait for the show to begin. You wanted to absolutely make sure you saw it when it happened. You know, uh, you, of course we had VCRs and so on, but you were, you were somewhat limited in your ability to watch it at a different time. Uh, you were fully engrossed in, in, in that product. You, you didn't have a device in your hand while you were watching the show. You know, for many of us, you were watching with friends, you were watching with family, you were going, you were going to school the next day, going to work the next day, talking about what happened on the show. So it's not only the sheer viewership that I think, uh, you know, you see such a change. It's also the nature of the viewing experience as well. And maybe I'm sounding a little bit, you know, old school here. I don't know. But I also think that's, that's a, a little bit of a shame because I think wrestling works best when you can almost – and again, this isn't an original thought, but you can give yourself permission to almost what is happening on the screen is real. You know, when, when Goldberg is about to pin Hogan at the Georgia Dome, you look at that crowd, no one, no one in the crowd is saying to themselves, well, this doesn't matter because it's all predetermined. But that, for that moment, you know, you're reacting to, like, to that as if it was the World Series or the Super Bowl. And I think that's what the wrestling business is all about, is, is giving you permission and actually sometimes not even giving you permission, but creating the circumstances in which you can lose yourself and, and react to something as if it were real. And I think that might be a little bit harder when you're kind of wading through memes and comments and critiques on your phone while watching the show at the same time. Again, that's, that's just my perspective on that, but that's how I look at it. Pretty well said. And the suspension of disbelief is definitely something that's been missing. And you're right. I mean, you go back, you watch Hogan, Goldberg from the Georgia Dome, you get lost in it when Luger the year before beat Hogan for the title in, in, in Detroit on Nitro. I mean, you, you get lost in it, and it's just unbelievable. And Shivani's reactions were just priceless. I mean, just unbelievable that, that they were able to create those moments on Nitro and have those big title changes on Nitro, too. I mean, whenever you turn on Nitro, you literally didn't know what was going to happen, and, and you had some huge, monumental, just gigantic moments. Absolutely, and I think you know that's something that, to varying degrees, you know, Eric Bischoff, for example, has been criticised for. You know, over the years, is is giving away a lot of those those big moments and big matches on on TV. 
And you could make the argument possibly that they leaned a little bit too heavily in that direction at times. Um, but I think, you know, for, for a period of time, um, you know, that, that did seem to be a very successful strategy in terms of making that show feel like it was a can't-miss show and we're not saving the very best moments, you know, once a month on, on pay-per-view or once a year for our biggest show. Um, and, and, of course, every time you, you do something like that by uh, offering a, a major match or a major moment and the increased viewership that comes with that, you're, you're allowing uh, more people, theoretically, to sample your shows and, and possibly become, um, you know, very close followers of, of what you're doing. So, you know, that's something where, you know, I, I, I suppose you could say there, there certainly is a, a certain logic behind that. And uh, it would be interesting to kind of look at um, if you were to catalog perhaps the last 10 years of Monday night shows and really try to think about, you know, those moments that, that qualify for what we're talking about, where you can lose yourself, you know, in that, in that moment and, uh, and, and give yourself permission that what's happening is, is real. Um, I think for a lot of people, especially fans from back then, it would be a pretty short list where it seemed like back then in a, in a given month of programming between the two shows, you know, you were just getting so many uh, memorable things to, to hold on to and think about. So it's just, uh, it, it's hard to compare. It's very, very hard to compare those, those areas because of, because of all the changes that we talked about. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned Eric Bischoff, and he's somebody who's been really putting over your book. And it's not like you kiss his ass in the book. I mean, you're just flat out honest with everything that happened. But he puts it over big. He really kind of denigrates the death of WCW book and really kind of promotes Nitro, which helps you really, and in the long run, I think about it, I mean, the, the guy that ran WCW, the only guy to ever beat a McMahon, not only Vince McMahon, but a McMahon, is Eric Bischoff. I mean, that's some pretty high praise from uh, EZE. It, it, it is. You're, you're right, John. And I think um, what, I, what I've said when people have asked me about this before is, you know, I know, again, Eric Bischoff is one of those people that um, many fans have, have different uh, feelings about. But I think you, you have to commend the fact that when you look at, um, as, you, as you put it there, his portrayal in the book or uh, the, the things that are covered in relation to his WCW tenure, and then you combine that with his subsequent reaction to the book's release, I, I think it would be very hard for a lot of us to look at something that um, does contain some material that we may find possibly embarrassing. We may find, um, you know, certainly negative at times. We may find not the most flattering and still retain your, your um, overall uh, impression of, of the work as a whole um, in terms of being able to say, well, you know, good or bad, whether I like it or not, this is the truth. And this is, uh, this, this is an honest reflection of, of actually what happened. And so, you know, once the book was published, you know, I, I knew at some point, um, you know, he would, he would obviously read it, and I wasn't, you know, exactly sure what the, the response would be on, on his end. And like I say, I think you have to commend the fact that he's able to take the, the good with the bad and, and still say, you know, you know what, this is, this is definitely a book that you should read if you want to understand the WCW story. I mean, I've had a couple of uh, face-to-face interactions with him at the, uh, the StarCast events that, that Conrad Thompson has put on. And, you know, I was, quite frankly, I was honored that they uh, 
asked me to be part of a panel about the Nitro book at the StarCast in Las Vegas last year. Um, you know, that was, that was something they didn't have to do. I'm sure, you know, people were going there for many other reasons than to hear us talk about, you know, the Nitro book. Uh, but, you know, I was, I was very much flattered and honored that they would do that. And, uh, you know, I, as I say, I've had the chance to speak to him at those events. And, you know, I, I've, I've told him, I, you know, I, I don't know if that many people could maintain that kind of perspective, having read some things that they weren't necessarily, you know, too pleased about. So, uh, you know, I certainly have to commend him, you know, very highly for that. Very cool of him, because obviously a lot of parts of the book doesn't really shed him in like the, the perfect light. I mean, it's just the honest truth of kind of what happened and what went down. So it is great to get his honest opinion on the book. And like I said, he kind of rips death of WCW. And I recently talked to Brian Alvarez. We had him on the show and he was saying that the books are very similar, but I kind of was saying, well, you have a lot more interviews in it than they did. I mean, they do have interviews and stuff and they did get some sources, but you do, I mean, kind of go above and beyond. I mean, I mean, 120 interviews, and you're interviewing guys that they clearly not didn't or couldn't get or whatever, but they clearly just didn't get those interviews that you got. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I would add to that as well. I think, you know, one of the things that um, hopefully sets this, this book apart from some other books is some of the access to the materials that I was able to get hold of in relation to the company. I was able to be provided with a lot of documents and memos and, and notes and financials um, that relate to WCW that pretty much no one has seen since the company closed. And, you know, I can't talk too much about how that came about. But, right, right. Um, you know, what, what I can say is that was tremendously helpful in terms of being able to uh, verify what some people were saying at certain points, to, to cross-reference information, uh, that I gained from from an interview or, or sets of interviews, um, and so you know that's that's where I would hope you know if, if people read this and get that um, overall impression of, of of accuracy as you were saying, you know I'd like to think that that plays a big role as well. But you know I, I can't speak for other accounts. I can't speak for other books. I can only say with this particular book, um, I felt it would be intellectually dishonest for me to publish something. Um, that discusses other people and a big part of their life without at the very least reaching out to them and, and ideally uh, getting them to talk about um, the aspects of the story that, 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 uh, that regarded them. Um, you know, I, I wasn't comfortable with doing that. So, you know, that was, that was my approach. But again, I, you know, I can only speak for sort of what my motivation was in putting together this particular book. Well, the book has been getting rare reviews. It's an awesome book. It's so comprehensive and it's so in-depth. And you, obviously, you said you spent so many years on it. You worked very hard on it. It is great. And I think if any fan is out there kind of on the fence, you should read this book. I mean, you really, really get the true history of the end of WCW. But really, you know, the incredible rise as well, obviously. But the, like you say, the inevitable collapse. What do you think is? the real collapse, the fall of WCW? you think it's, it's many different things, or is it all oh, bad creative, like a lot of people throw out there, like, oh, Russo killed it, uh, bad creative. What, like, what, what's your thoughts on kind of the collapse, a lot of different things? Well, the reason I think the word inevitable is in the subtitle is because I think having spoken to so many people and having researched this as heavily as I did and examined all of all of those records as I talked about and, and really tried to think about this from many different perspectives – you know, I think the the sort of fatal flaw uh, in in the 
WCW business plan, I suppose, is that the company never had a full degree of control over its own affairs. And as long as you had a wrestling company being part of a larger broadcasting empire, this, this corporate behemoth, sort of broadcasting system, you know, I think it was an inevitability, certainly when you consider, uh, you know, the, 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 the merger, uh, first of all, with, with Time Warner, then, of course, the, the AOL Time Warner merger that happened um, subsequent to that years later. Um, as, as Ted Turner himself was more and more removed from the company, as a lot of his um, key officials were more and more removed from having a say in WCW's affairs, I think it was only a matter of time before, um, before you know, the company went away. And you know, that, that was one of the misconceptions I think that I tried to clear up in the book is a lot of times there's this analogy that's drawn between uh, Vince McMahon and Eric Bischoff, for example. You know, these are two guys who are heading their, their organizations, but for reasons that I lay out in the book, you know, Bischoff's role was not analogous to Vince McMahon. You know, he, he was reporting to, to Harvey Schiller, first of all, you know, and Harvey Schiller, as head of Turner Sports, was was reporting up another chain of command. So, um, you know, for, for that and, and many other sort of complex organizational reasons, um, you know, those, those two sort of roles can't be compared. But so I think, you know, certainly, if you if you look at the creative output, um, if you look at um, you know the, the sheer entertainment value and the the quality of the storylines and so on, that's obviously a very subjective thing. But I think most fans would probably be of the opinion that um, certainly in the in the final days of the company, it, it, it definitely wasn't on the level that it was at its peak. But to suggest that there's a uh, a clear correlation there, insofar as you know when a wrestling company starts producing poor storylines, that's increasing the likelihood that it's going to go out of business. I think if that was the case, then the WWE probably would have gone out of business a decade ago, if not longer. <laughs> so you know. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure people in the business wish it was that simple, but uh, but I'm, I don't think it is. And the thing that's so interesting, kind of, oh, WWE did this and did that. Well, when WWF kind of countered them, and and that era, you know, the Attitude Era, and that was coming up. That was kind of the what the world was like at that point, and what they wanted. And mm. the age range was perfect, and Steve Austin was perfect, and Vince as a foil was perfect, and The Rock. I mean, they had so many good things going for them, and, and maybe Hogan and Savage and Piper and those guys were were kind of maybe past their prime at that point or maybe passe to some fans. But I think that when you look at the collapse of Nitro and stuff, you, you do have to say uh, Raw was definitely on a roll. Absolutely, and I think you, you, you nailed it. And that's, uh, that's one part of this I think sometimes gets gets overlooked, isn't it? You know, we focus on what WCW was doing wrong, whether it be behind the scenes or what was happening on the shows. But let's not forget the fact that the WWF absolutely caught fire. And, you know, for a variety of reasons, you, you had two once-in-a-lifetime or once-in-a-generation, you know, superstars in The Rock and, and Steve Austin. You had um, the, the, the creative product drastically um, improving. You had Jim Ross on, on, on commentary. You had Jim Ross... Uh, working in talent relations. You had Vince McMahon, you know, at the top of his game. You had the support of USA Network. You had the company being so in tune with the cultural zeitgeist at the time. Um, and the fact that momentum is also a huge factor as well. You know, once once you 
get hot, and I think you've seen this in wrestling over the years, you know, there's, there's, there can be a stretch of time where it can seem like you, you can do nothing wrong. And you can get, to use a, you know, a, a terminology from the business, the wrestling business, you can get any, anyone over. You can get anything over. You can get the absolute you know, reaction that you want from the crowd in attendance and, and the people watching at home. And conversely, you know, a lot of times when wrestling companies historically have got cold, uh, it doesn't matter what they do. It seems like they can't get out of that. And I think, you know, the, the story really of those last couple of years of WCW is pretty much everything the WWF did, you know, with some exceptions, turned to gold. And it seemed like no matter what WCW did, they could never get on a on a hot streak. They could never uh, turn around the bad feeling that a lot of fans had about the product. Um, and, you know, I think one thing that didn't help was the constant resetting and restarting and, and changes in direction that seemed like, they were happening every two or three months. But I think you're absolutely right in, in pinpointing something that um, all of us, I think, you know, sometimes forget is there was another party in the mix here, which was uh, the, the rival company, the WWF, that um, were just absolutely on fire during that same time. As we hit the wind-down button and we head towards the finish, um, there's just so much with this book. I feel like we definitely got to have you back on uh, to definitely even delve into it even further. But what do you think about kind of the, the legacy of WCW? What is the true legacy? Not the WWF narrative, you know, we're going to make this uh, music video and we're going to kind of tear down WCW. We're going to have all these documentaries tearing it down and not really maybe tell the whole truth of the story. But what is the lasting legacy of WCW in your mind? The real legacy. That's a, it's a very interesting question. I, I think... Uh... What I, what I think about in terms of the, the lasting legacy, quite frankly, not only of WCW, but the whole Monday Night uh, or Monday Night Wars time period would be, you know, what can happen uh, when you have a true competition, when, when both entities feel like what's happening is an existential threat, when they're absolutely motivated to be producing the same uh, or, or their, their optimal uh, product week in and, and week out. I think that was the, the, the contribution, quite frankly, that WCW ended up making to the wrestling business is really establishing very firmly in the minds of every wrestling fan, this is what can happen when you have competition. This is, this is what can happen when you know, Vince McMahon, for example, uh, is, is forced to not present the same tried and true programming, but actually realize that you know, he's in a fight for his life and, and really... Um, produce the very best programming that he can. So, you know, I think that's probably the the, the greatest contribution that, that Nitro as a show specifically made to the business is is making it clear in wrestling fans that that ultimately is um, is the most important ingredient I think in terms of producing the best programming. What do you think was your favorite interview? I mean, there's. 120, obviously, but could you narrow it down to a couple that you just really enjoyed? Maybe not just favorite, but maybe some that you really, really enjoyed? Yeah, I can tell you um, my favorite interview, without a doubt, I had the chance to speak to Bill Burke, who was the former president of the TBS network. And uh, I mentioned to you rather vaguely before, John, you know, there are some people in the who worked in the TV business, the media business that WCW was a key part of what they did for a period of time and they moved on to other things, worked sometimes in other businesses and got into other facets of life and you know, Bill would be one of those people you know, that uh, when pressed about it and when asked about it can recall an astonishing amount of information 
um, but is not necessarily, you know, at all as engrossed in it as a lot of us fans are, but we, we can tell you, you know, all of the nuts and bolts of it. Right. Um, but sitting down with him, I actually had, there's one thing that I didn't mention is, you know, I had the chance to do some of these interviews in person with people. They weren't just all over the phone. And having the chance to sit down with him for a good two, two and a half hours in his office and listen to him describe, um, you know, not only uh, a lot of things that um, relate to WCW specifically, but also what it was like to work in the media business at that time and, and, and what Ted Turner was like and what the um, organizational culture was like at Turner uh, or, or TVS generally um, and really what was, was, was getting them up in the morning to do their jobs. You know, I learned a huge amount just having that conversation, you know, things that you wouldn't even think of, but things that actually help you in other areas of your life, you know, aside and apart from actually putting together this book. And I think that's one of the more valuable things that came out of this experience is if you reach out to people and are willing to sit back and listen to them, you know, a lot of times you'll pick up things that um, can, can really help you in a number of, of different areas and give you a lot to think about. So I think without a doubt, you know, that's, that's probably not the answer you were necessarily expecting, but speaking to him um, was just, was just hugely helpful for, for all of those reasons. But I'm very grateful to every single person for the time that they gave me because quite frankly without that you wouldn't have a book you know you'd have some guy who's never worked in wrestling uh ranting and raving about you know what what he thinks worked and what didn't work and i don't think that would be very interesting for anyone so i'm, I'm absolutely indebted to all of those people that's a great surprise answer that is great <laughs> and i encourage everybody Get out there. This is probably the greatest wrestling book. You want to throw Bret Hart's book out there? Sure. You know, I'm not going to disagree, but this is the greatest wrestling book. Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. Guy Evans, everybody needs to go out there and get this book. Please tell us where they can get it and all the social media and everything associated with the Nitro book. Well, I appreciate that, John. I, I want to thank you again for uh, all of your kind words about the book. It's very, very kind for you to say that. You know, I'm, I'm happy that the book is registered in the way that it has, and, uh, and long may it continue. So the uh, best place to get the book, uh, well, there's two places. You can go to wcwnitrobook.com, wcwnitrobook.com. That's where you can get the paperback uh, ebook versions. You can get a signed paperback if you want, or you can go to Amazon. Just type in Nitro, Nitrobook, WCW Nitrobook, um, and again, you'll find the paperback, the ebook. And then hopefully by the time you're listening to this, the audio version as well. So those are the two places that you can get the book. Uh, there's also a Twitter account that's associated with the book, which is just at WCW Nitro Book. So you can also uh, shoot us a message on there. But again, John, I, uh, I just really want to thank you for the time. It's been uh, great talking with you. Thank you. I really appreciate all the time you gave us. And everybody, please go out there support guy and get the nitro book you will not regret it awesome stuff guy thank you again really appreciate it and awesome work with the book you're welcome thanks so much thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling what the world is downloading